Hello and welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show. Our guest for this episode is Sean Michael O'Keefe. He's the producer for the annual South by Southwest Interactive Festival in Austin, Texas. Jonathan can be found on Twitter at Sean O'Keefe and blogs at SeanO'Keefe.com. Your heroic hosts for this episode are Christopher Schmidt and Sam Cap, and together they talk with Sean about being in bands, rocking some fonts, and how South by Southwest is put together and put on each year. We went a little longer on this discussion with Sean, so we'll skip all the formalities and jump right into the interview. Enjoy. Hi, Sean. Hello. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, just want to introduce you to uh, Sam Capilla. Hi. Hi, Sam. And uh, thanks for being on the show. We're really honored that you could take some time out of, uh, of your... How are you all doing today? Ah, oh, man. Doing great. It's, uh, I think we have a cold front of 100-degree uh, <laughs> weather today, so that's pretty nice. It's it not, is. It's not 106, so that's pretty nice. Very good. How are you doing? I'm great. You know, I just got back from Las Vegas and our uh, inaugural South by Southwest Vita V event there, and uh, I'm happy to report that it was actually cooler in Las Vegas than it was in Austin this week. So. Wow. You know something's gone horribly wrong when that's the case. So. Yeah. That's crazy. We're just really happy to have you on the show. Um, but one of, the, one of the questions we always ask is uh, how you got into the web. And so I just want to just, you know, because our, our industry, our, I guess our generation is like, we didn't really just, you know, go to school directly to, um, to get on the web. Or something like that. So we actually kind of like backed into it. So I was wondering, uh, what was your story of how you got into the web? Oh, goodness. I have to talk about these details, huh? Um, yeah, I, I'm of uh, a demographic that sometimes referred to as Gen X, I guess. Um, I actually came to the world of computers, I don't know, fairly young. Um, my dad was involved in moving data out of mainframes for insurance companies in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, so my first computer was an Apple II. Nice. Um, and I would dork out writing uh, basic programs and playing Choplifter a lot. Nice. Um, but, um, and then, you know, I, I took somewhat of an absence, I guess, from it for a while once I started playing music. Uh, and actually, rock and roll kind of stole my soul for a while, and I did a bunch of stuff with bands throughout the 90s, and then really kind of, you know, started using technology um, you know, to record music and do a lot of different things that way and really kind of got sucked back in um, that way. And, and I guess when I was at the University of Texas, um, started using this thing called email. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of uh, fell into place from there. Um, you know, so yeah, I've been through all the crazy stages of, you know, trying to hoard as many America Online CD codes or whatever, Um to, you know, yeah, I'm doing all kinds of crazy things with computers. and uh, But I guess it wasn't really until some point in the late 90s I started, you know, building websites and, you know, being like, wow, this, you know, mysterious thing called the Internet is actually, you know, fairly easy to, to build content on, um, you know, because the old uh, code from my youth of, you know, 10 print quote, you know, whatever, um, was remarkably similar to uh, this stuff called HTML. Cool. So what bands were you in? 
Oh dear, you're gonna make me. Uh, I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny uh, the various bands. I think I think the only one that people would have heard of was uh, American Analog Set. Uh, Ken and those guys um, were gracious enough to have me join the band and tour with them uh, throughout the late '90s for a while, uh, and it was a great experience, um, you know. And I think that um, you know more than anything, it just kind of confirmed that you know kind of what I was talking about before, this kind of convergence of what was happening at that time with the music industry and technology. and um, But yeah, it was a great, great experience. I got to tour uh, around the country various times and um, play in a lot of clubs and sleep on hardwood floors and um, decided that spending my time in front of a computer was more comfortable than spending my time on a hardwood floor. So, so what was your, your instrument or your, like your, or instruments? I don't know. I'm sorry. Oh, what what what, what um, instrument did you play, or or? What? Oh, uh, I guess I'm more of that like singer, guitarist, frontman dude. Um, justly enough, but I in American Analog said I I ran sound on a lot of the tours, and I also played guitar and percussion. Nice, cool. Was there a lot of MySpace involved at the time? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I um, that was the era. Um, it's a little later. A little later on, there was the era of MySpace. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're still at that time stuck in mostly just like sending email around to people. But the MySpace wave, I think, hit shortly after I was in the band. Um, and oddly enough, I kind of, I guess, I had various projects that were on MySpace um, for music, but I had always avoided having a personal MySpace account. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up. Uh, one day, this was kind of the first lesson I learned that if you don't control your online identity, somebody else will, <laughs> which is an important uh, lesson to learn. Uh, and I learned it the hard way because one of my friends created a MySpace page for me mm. that had a lovely mixture of details of half true and obviously some rather colorful things that were uh, <laughs> not true, um, but it was enough to where most of my friends and family um, recognized it as potentially being me. And then um, I found out because somebody had gotten really upset because I had not asked them to be their friend on MySpace. Mm-hmm. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't have a MySpace page. And the rest is history after that. So I, at that point, I really had, um, you know, grabbed the domain in my own name and really started um, – you know, doing that on a lot of different platforms to appropriately represent myself so that people wouldn't pull pranks on me and others. So. Wow. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, I did, you always hear about people stealing identities, but, um, but yeah, just like, I guess, I guess that is stealing identity to some extent, right? So. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, nine times out of ten, it's somebody you know. So <laughs> it's like all crime. It's, it's you know, people close to you. So in the so in the late nineties, you started building websites. What was your first website that you built? Wow, um, I had a couple. I think my first website that I actually built that I don't even know if I had kept it up that long was for a production company that a buddy of mine and I had. Um, we would do you know music um, and then some kind of film production, but mostly audio and engineering. Um, and so that was called Invid Productions, I think. Yeah. Uh, but the first real one that I think I did was a personal blog called SoLab. And then that kind of mutated into 
design ops. So, you know, right, I guess, the turn of the century, um, it was really a pretty amazing time for the web. And I think, you know, I, I kind of look back and, and really kind of echo a lot of the sentiments that, you know, Anil Dash referred to recently in his, you know, the web we lost post that, you know, had a lot of traction. And, you know, back in, I don't know, 2000, 2001, two and three, um, you know, everybody was just experimenting, doing all these crazy things. You know, obviously blogging was, um, you know, blowing up. And, you know, but, people, but even from just our perspective, you know, people were doing these experimental portfolios and all kinds of cool stuff. And at the time, I was really um, just loving design on the web and all the amazing things you could find. And so I started archiving um, a lot of what I was finding, uh, essentially just aggregating content uh, in a site called Design Ops. And, uh, yeah, and I, I did that for a couple years. Um, you know, there was no advertising. It was just this labor of love. And, um, you know, I knew that it was kind of semi-successful um, when people started contacting me to, like, design uh, things for them. And that, I was like, wait a minute, like, maybe I should consider doing a lot of this, you know, for other people on a more formal basis. And so um, at that time is really when I kind of on the side just kind of launched a, a freelance design business. And ironically, that was about the time that I started taking on more uh, responsibilities at South Southwest for their web front end, mm-hmm. largely because I started um, bitching about how bad our website was. And um, <laughs> internally, and, and, you know, because Hugh and I were really struggling at that time to... Um, you know, convince folks of the value of Southwest Interactive. And, um, you know, it was right after the dot-com bubble had burst. And, um, you know, everybody was interested in going to very niche conferences about, um, you know, whether mostly like, you know, wireless telecom conferences or things like that. And, um, you know, we really saw the value of, of an event that showcased the intersection between all these different sectors in the industry and, and emerging technology. And it it took a while for people to really recognize that outside of a core group of people that had been building um, that event for a long time since the late 90s. Um, so, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was around that time that I really started getting my hands dirty in a, a lot of uh, CSS uh, technologies that were emerging at the time and, and really kind of looking at web standards and, and how that was um, such an important part to how the web functioned. Yeah, and it, it's how it functions. And so, design design ops is that still around? Or is, is it still up, or is it? Oh, you know, I I redirected it at one point to um, my personal site. I don't know when that happened. That was a long time ago. But oddly enough, I was um, along this. Yeah, oddly enough, recently I was I was looking at Wayback Machine, trying to grab screenshots for all of these things. Just kind of like. You know, realizing that it's at the time I had built all those blogs, both SoLab, which stood for Sean O'Keefe Laboratories. Um, so SoLab and DesignOps were built on uh, Pivot, which at the time was a database-free blogging software that just used uh, permissions to, you know, overwrite and create different files. Um, and that was attractive to me at the time because I didn't know anything about databases. And I didn't. I was like, oh, do I want to learn like, you know, SQL and mess with all that? And I don't know. And um, ended up uh, using Pivot for a while until, um, I guess, what did I use after that? 
think I played with movable type for a while after that and ultimately um, ended up getting into bed with WordPress mm. and um, using that kind of exclusively for a lot of those uh, side projects and passion projects. And now, like, all of my personal sites, um, like seanokeefe.com and Rock That Font, and then uh, Yuptastic, which is kind of uh, an umbrella company that my wife and I have for various creative endeavors, um, they're all run on WordPress. Um, and as, you know, Chris, you may have known just from seeing Drupal, you know, Southwest is on Drupal and I've done a lot of projects um, in that environment. Um, so yeah, it, it's it was kind of a crazy time, but um, I do need to kind of go back up and, and fire up Pivot again and see if I can get um, those old sites up and running. It'd be, it'd be fun to play with. Yeah, well, you mentioned that we, we saw each other at the Drupal Camp uh, Austin, was it? and um, and I just loved your your presentation. That was really really awesome. Um, and um, then, and there's like I tweeted the, the heck out of that thing. So. Uh, and uh, thank you. So, and um, one of the points you made, like the thing about like talking about like online identity and making sure you own it, is like you mentioned, um, it's like have a personal site, you know, and and not make it your. It doesn't have to be. And the reason why you said like it was like it doesn't have to be like your personal brand, but that you own your own data, and that um, and that you said like um, what was it uh, that you pictures of your family don't have to be on Facebook. Right, and that uh, yeah. it goes back to like you know trying to go back and find all this data, like you know, on the way back machine and stuff like that. So, and I found that this is really awesome that uh, that they have that. But, but again, I, it kind of like my, my question about that was um, one. I think it's totally totally awesome just to have your own website, just you know, for branding purposes and 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 for posting stuff like that, and you know, for all that data. But um, one question I have is, there are sources like way way back machine, and do you do post it on the on the internet, you know? Do you do you really need to have it backed up, or 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 do you just want to rely on third party services? You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I certainly um, recognize that you know, folks get a lot of value out of using these other platforms, and that's great. I mean, I, I certainly have used them on and off for a long time, um, and I think I mentioned to you that I actually left Facebook at some point early last year yeah. because I didn't really like the way that. Um, they were running a company, and I wasn't you know, personally getting the value out of it. And yeah, it's easy for me to say because I, I know how to fire up, you know, other streams of content um, and other channels. But um, you know, so yeah, I, I think obviously we all kind of slice and dice, um, kind of what we do online in various ways. Um, you know, one of the interesting things is when I, I talk with people about you know when they're surprised, they're like, "Oh, you're not on Facebook," or and, and everybody, everybody I talk to. It's like, oh yeah, I, I get it. You know, I'm I'm only on there now because of my family, mm-hmm. and you know, that's kind of where that came from. Is like, you know, yeah, I get it that like your mom and you know, all of our, our grandparents or whatever are on on Facebook now, and that's super cool in so many different ways. Uh, but you know, to me, it was just like um, in that talk, you know, an important thing to realize that you know there are other options out there, and there are a lot of other great options. And different things that you can do to have your family involved and, and share your life with them and, and connect online. And, you know, I just think that it's important to kind of um, really help shape where the web is going by, you know, um, how we use the technology that we use. You know, I do have a lot of, um, I guess, uh, it kind of comes from my 
really rock and roll upbringing playing in bands, right? I mean, there's uh, an analogy there to like, you know, we're going to put out our own records, um, you know, we're in this kind of for the right reasons. It's the process of, of making the records themselves, which is part of the art form, um, and having that control and having that ownership. And I think that, you know, my projects uh, on the web should be no different. Um, and, yeah, as a result, you know, I, I want to, I don't want other people using pictures of my kids and ways that I haven't authorized and change the terms of service and, you know, just things like that. You know, I, I want to maintain control over my content, over my data. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I, this is with a full understanding of why um, companies, not just Facebook, but various other companies have the terms of service and policies they do. I get it. Uh, you know, we have the same challenges as South Pacific West. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a choice that I've made, um, you know, to really support the indie web. And, um, I think that other people should do the same and really work towards, um, you know, getting control of what they do online, whether it be through, you know, whether you're just talking about content or your own voice or, um, you know, just platforms you use or the, um, how private your information is online. Obviously we've had all this crazy NSA stuff going on recently, uh, in the kind of national discussions. And so, um, yeah, that's just kind of my take on it. And again, it's um, really just kind of comes out of my uh, growing up at a time, kind of the new wave and post new wave punk rock era uh, music. And I kind of, that's all I know uh, what to do when it comes to the web. So Yeah, it, it seems in, I don't know, this is kind of like a overwrought uh, thing about it, but it was just, you know, we went from AOL dominating, you know, everywhere, like you have CD-ROMs everywhere, like AOL is the internet, to people building their blogs and systems like that, and the era of movable type where you had to install, you know, movable type on your server or your web host, and now we have services like Facebook coming up where it's all web-based, you know, you an operating system, and then it's almost kind of like, you know, Facebook is the internet, right? So it's for a lot of people, so it's... Yeah. So it's... But yeah, so and not realizing like how much potential it is just to uh, build your own, you know, publishing empire, if you will. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think, you know, I mean, I think you you brought up a really interesting point. It's about the balance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if Facebook is serving, you know, most everyone's needs and essentially acting as the internet for the majority of people on the planet, um, you know, where's the kind of uh, where are the controls and kind of balance of, of power in that, you know? Uh, and I just think that there really needs to be a lot more diversity in people's online experiences, um, you know, so that they're open to having conversations outside of Facebook, whether it be on Twitter, um, you know, via their own site, uh, other forums like, you know, Reddit or Metafilter or wherever. Um, I just think that, you know, that dialogue needs to happen uh, everywhere. Because I think, you know, as we know, you know, with the filter bubble, uh, we tend to kind of only uh, reinforce what we want to hear and people who agree with us. And I think that's mm-hmm. a little too easy to do on Facebook, um, particularly when Facebook is also doing the same thing, kind of serving you as of things that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff they've done with the social graph is, is fascinating. You know, right. uh, yeah. you know, somebody who does a lot of, of uh, marketing is responsible for a lot of that. Southwest, I mean, it, it's a a marketer's dream, and I get it, but I think at the same time, um, you have to be really cognizant of, you know, what your experience in Facebook is like when you're reinforcing who your friends are, 
Facebook is reinforcing what content and ads are served to you, and they're helping control that and shape that. Um, you know, it, it's it's not, um, I guess, as diverse um, and, and open as it should be in a, in a lot of different ways. And so, um, and yeah, it's hard. It's hard. You know, I mean, I think the trend is more and more is that, you know, I mean, you remember when we used to have various there's still some services around bookmarking services, you know, but like having a, a collection of all your bookmarks and, you know, waking up in the morning and reading like 10 to 20 websites, you know, it's like harder and harder to do that over time because right. you're just like, Oh, well, I'm just looking at Twitter right. or just looking at this, you know, this, you know, big fire hose of information pouring out and you find things in different ways. And that's certainly amazingly valuable. But I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, interesting consequences you know i mean people have talked a lot about long form content on the web and mm-hmm. you know just again that push for us only digesting culture and 140 characters at a time or and just a couple of facebook posts at a time. you were talking about bookmarking services um before i think we got cut off about how like in long yep. form content and some of that too so yeah i probably rambled on for another minute or two <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah. i think i talking about how you know you used to your experience on the web was much more diverse because you you know have all these bookmarks of all these different sites and mm-hmm. be able to see a lot of long form content and right. not just uh, digest the web you know in 140 characters at a time or mm-hmm. in Facebook posts you know from various friends you know that it was more about um, just the diversity of experience online and 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 yeah and, and I miss those days and there's nothing from stopping people from doing that today it's just you know obviously these. Um, you know, other streams, you know, are giving a lot of value, but it's just, you know, important to realize that it's a very different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I guess on one level, it could be analogous on some way to like, you know, the active listening of uh, a vinyl record, for example, mm-hmm. versus kind of more passive of just like having a, a web streaming service online in the background while you do other work. Um, they're kind of very different experiences. And I think that, um, you know, they both have value, um, but, you know, on the web, when, you know, it, it, when you're talking about how you get, you know, your information and make um, decisions in the world around you based on that, you know, it, it's important to have that diversity and get outside your filter bubble. Right. Well, it's also an issue of, like, um, long form versus short form versus the quality of the content. Yeah. And also, like, the repetition. Because I feel like uh, a lot of people do short and quasi-decent quality, but at rapid succession. And that kind of replaces the need to actually, not replaces the need, but it feels like it, it, like they try to fill that hole of long form, but like on a monthly calendar schedule or something like that. And, um, and so I feel like that's kind of lost. And I, I find this very with like the TV shows that are coming out now where um, there's so much padding into the TV shows where like, uh, in case you missed it, here, we'll take a minute to miss what you missed if you haven't joined us in the last 15 minutes. I'm like, well, like, so it, it totally hoses the people who, um, Invested the last fifteen minutes of their lives in the TV show, and there's you know this kind of thing. Yeah, with. I totally I see that. I mean, you know, like the Daily Show is a great example of that, where they'll bring on some awesome guest, and right when they start getting into the meat of it, they're like, "Okay, you can see the rest of the interview on the web." And right. I think that's probably a good solution for them. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I think it's you know long form content is is, is really valuable. I think you know it's a, there's a lot of different issues. There's a kind of production issue. Of, it's really difficult to um, you know spend time and, and make that kind of content. I mean, I certainly am the first to have kind of suffered the consequences of 
you know, using Twitter most of the time and, um, I love doing that, you know, but I have to consciously kind of always, oh, you know, like one of the things that, you know, I think a number of months ago, I, one of my personal um, mantras or things I was trying to do is, you know, blog more and retweet less. Mm-hmm. That was kind of, and uh, it was funny watching the retweets on that one. But, um, <laughs> I think, you know, it's just an important just, you know, from the production and, and kind of personal experience of sharing thoughts but you know also at the same time you know it's important to make time to read you know on the web and, and read you know these long articles um, about important subjects whether it be you know coding or um, something of more of a political nature so it's, it's kind of there's a consumption end of it as well and it, so, yeah. it fascinates me that there's a lot of these read it later sort of services because we have to do that exactly We've gotten to that point Exactly. Yeah, it's also read it later. Was like, do, do people actually go back and read it later, or is that just, um, <laughs> or just as me? Because I, I said to read it later, I'm like, I never go back to it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's pretty amazing. I think like a lot of times once you kind of you know press those buttons and kind of archive that away, it becomes kind of like a reference material, you know, that, that you may not go back to. So right. I don't enough. I don't you know do it often enough. So. Well, like also, like um, it, it kind of it gets that whole thing of I'm not sure just how relevant it is, but like um, you know, I write I write books and for the web industry and so that. And the most depressing point in time is like after you spend three, six, eight a year writing a book, is that uh, one edition of my books I was you know I put a Google alert for it. I was able to get the um, e- uh, the pirated copy PDF of it faster than the actual like book arrived from the publisher. At my doorstep, <laughs> and and I was just like, and I, I talked to my publisher, like, oh my gosh, this is so so depressing that people can actually get this new material for you know just pirated for it for free, and they said like, well, yeah, that, that stinks. Um, however, just realize people are going to do that, but they're not going to read it. I'm like, that's even worse. <laughs> they just yeah. like collect it. They don't want to like actually go through it and and. Uh, um, just say that they have it and not say they, um, they actually need it or something like that. So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's why I think about it. Every time I, I hit read it later, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to bother. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, okay. So, and um, I do want to talk about the Rock That Font project is, and to let people know about it more, but if you want to talk about some more, but it's, um, and you can tell me, let me just paraphrase what I think it is and then you can like, Expound on it, but uh, but you know, sure. I, I like it. it. It's about the topography and the uh, you know rock albums. It doesn't obviously don't doesn't have to be rock albums, but music albums and what type of typefaces they use and some of that. Is that right? Yeah, I mean that's, that's the short of it. I think we what do we? I don't know what's our tagline. The um, semi-verified, you know, like intersection of uh, rock and roll and typography and all its its glory or something like that but um but yeah i had the opportunity back in oh 2007ish um 8ish to um introduce Gary Helvetica at South by Southwest for one of his screenings on uh oh, i'm sorry Gary Hustwin <laughs> i was like what? is that a yeah. rock band because that sounds yeah. awesome yeah yeah, he'd probably kill me for saying that. But yeah, Gary Hustwood's Helvetica, um, which, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have seen, but 
you haven't, it's an amazing film about you know the story of Helvetica and how it became so ubiquitous. Dude, I was I was in the audience when that happened. Okay, well there you go. So, um, and that you know that film just really you know impacted me in, in terms of just thinking a lot more about how information uh, was transferred to me um, in the world around me, and, and particularly through um, typography and the you know the, the clothes that words wear, and. Um, you know, for me, a lot of that was going back to my rock and roll roots and, you know, looking at album covers. And I'd always um, loved doing those kind of projects personally. And, um, yeah, so just started, I kicked around this idea for a long time and then finally launched it, um, I guess, about two or three years ago now um, with uh, some friends, Eric Hurtgen, who's a, a designer, um, an artist, um, and Charlotte, and then a, a DJ out of New York, actually Queens, not allowed to say he's from New York anymore, but um, Les Jacobs. And um, yeah, so the three of us kind of just started writing um, about the intersection of typography and rock and roll and, and really talking about the art direction of a lot of the records that we loved growing up with. And um, it was a lot of fun, and, and we had a lot of fun with it. And, and I knew that. Um, it had kind of tapped into this vein in the community when we started getting approached by different artists who had done a lot of these um, record covers, like, like Howard Wakefield, who worked a lot with Peter Seville on a lot of the New Order and Joy Division stuff. Like We did an interview with him, um, which was great. And then we've got some other stuff coming up that I can't quite talk about that's pretty cool. I mean, you know, some guys um, done amazing things and some of these great typefaces and so, you know, it really started out as me just kind of sharing my own educational journey um, into typography, um, which is kind of an infinite journey, um, you know. So, um, but yeah, we have, we have a lot of fun with it. And I think, you know, I, I guess I can tell you guys this. First, to kind of know we're about to kind of give the site away to the community, so to speak, um, and, and basically make it a lot easier for folks to just get involved and become guest contributors on their own. Um, and I think it'll be fun to see, um, you know, how that evolves as a result of that, um, taking much more of an open platform approach to it. And, you know, right now we definitely invite anybody, um, to participate, um, and, and, you know, post articles about their favorite records and, um, you know, the fonts used on those records and, and artists, um, but, you know, I, I want to make it a lot easier to do for people to send in stuff and, and really be much more collaborative. And I think long term, you know, I'd love to see kind of essentially a database or archive of um, all these amazing records and the different, you know, typefaces that were used on them and, uh, you know, the different artists without you. Because right now, you know, most of the, I mean, first of all, as I've found, like most of the artists, you know, who may have developed these, you know, album covers um you know they weren't always documented very well Mm -hmm. um or you know perhaps the person that did most of the heavy lifting you know didn't really get credit on the final record and and, you know this is if you go back especially to like you know 70s and 80s where you know these like awesome gatefolds and you had so much more real estate to work with and now you know most designers when you know they're approaching kind of the parameters and constraints for what's something that needs to look like they're like all right what's this going to look like on an ipod or mm-hmm. on, um just you know in a browser at the you know at this 
small, you know, pixel ratio or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, it, it's nice cause it kind of celebrates, you know, both old and new and, uh, it, it's just fun to share that educational journey with everybody. And, um, you know, I wish, you know, my only regret is not having more time to develop content for the site. Um, we're kind of definitely more of the, um, long form, you know, kind of a level of detail that, um, it, it takes a long time to kind of do historical research and then contact the folks involved and see if they want to participate. And then, um, it's just, yeah, it's tough to kind of carve out enough time to do that. And it's, you know, again, it's a labor of love. Uh, the site's been ad free, um, for, like I said, two or three years and we just do it just because we love it. And, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to see uh, it become more of a community platform and kind of build in some features and tools to kind of facilitate that. And uh, I think that that'll be Rock That Font 3.0, I guess. So, cool. so how, do you mind if I ask about the technology to, to make it more uh, open submission platform? Is it just? Yeah, I mean, like as far as like what we use to build it, or yeah, um, like 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I mean, I'm a nerd, by the way. I don't want to let you know that. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, we use WordPress for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started the first Rock That Font version was just kind of a theme that I had. Um, kind of cooked up and modified from a few others. And, uh, you know, it, it worked well for a while. And then we realized that because we weren't producing um, a lot of content, mm-hmm. we wanted to kind of build an interface that would let people kind of see the whole catalog um, and kind of deep dive into content, you know, that may be a year or two old, a little bit easier. Uh, and I ended up kind of stumbling across um, this guy that, I guess he's, he's pretty popular now. Um, he's under the name Shaken and Stirred. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of WordPress themes. And there was one of his themes that um, at the time was really new and, and you know, didn't have a lot of traction that basically I could present um, all the record covers, you know, essentially, um, or as many as I wanted to on the, on the front page, on the home destination. Mm-hmm. Um, had all the right kind of bells and whistles of um, being responsive and, you know, basically mobile version, all kinds of stuff. You know, it's very friendly in all the right ways. And um, and I like that about it. And so I think that was maybe a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. We launched that new version of the site, um, just using mostly um, shaken and stirred code um, and modified a few things to, to suit our needs. Um, and kind of went from there, you know, as far as the process of, you know, writing posts, you know, nine times out of 10, it's us kind of going out and finding a record that we love. Mm-hmm. Then, um, you know, trying to do the, the research on who the artist is and see, you know, where they are. And, and sometimes we'll reach out to them and other times we'll just write more from the music side of it about, you know, what we loved and, um, you know, when the, for example, the typeface might be kind of obvious or developed by somebody who's no longer around. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the the basic part of, of that process, and it, I think it's different for all of us. And, you know, Eric Hurtgen is really good at just because he's much more of a hipster than I am these days. He's he usually knows a lot of the folks involved in a lot of newer release records, mm-hmm. um, and so he's able to you know get feedback from you know records that have been released rather recently. Like he's done you know, some really cool stuff. With, like, um, 
one of the latest arcade fire records and um, gosh, a lot of different bands. And then, uh, you know, whereas I'm more into like the deep dive into the past and finding, you know, a record that, uh, you know, I grew up with that, you know, whether it was, you know, Vaughn Oliver or somebody else and kind of looking back at um, kind of at that particular time, what the challenges were uh, in typography and, and things like that. So uh, one of my favorite ones was uh, recently we did like uh, Unrest, that band Unrest so back in like the early 90s. That was like a, a band that I listened to and kind of taking a deep dive into that back to, um, you know, who developed that typeface. It was, you know, somebody who worked in the UK forever doing, you know, cutting Ruby with. And like you had basically seen 50 or 60 year old span of how typography changed from the analog world to the digital world. And so it was, it's just been amazing to kind of talk with folks like that. So are you going to be sticking with WordPress for the next version for the open collaboration or? Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. I think for our purposes where, um, you know, I know the ins and outs of WordPress really well. And I think for the purposes of the site, it, you know, it's hard to find kind of a, um, a better platform out there that, that suits my needs. I think what I'll probably have to do is um, probably develop a, a custom theme, uh, kind of go full custom for us again, um, just depending on how we decide to, um, you know, integrate some of the community features that we'd like to, to do. Um, cool. I still kind of haven't really mapped that out. It's just been something that hmm. we know we want to do. We just haven't kind of, connected the dots on exactly how we're going to do it and um, right. hopefully kicking around some innovative ways to make it really easy for folks to participate and not, uh, you know, have, feel like they have to do the same kind of long form thing. So we're probably going to create another layer, um, you know, probably tied to some social channels where if people just want to archive um, a particular font on one of their favorite records, they can do that. But we'll also um, kind of have this long form channel it's kind of more the deep dive into uh, history and then the designer interviews and things like that. Uh, Typeo, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, typ.io is a catalog for web type, and it's basically anybody can upload a screenshot of any website, and then they list, you know, did they use Typekit? What typefaces did they use? There's a couple of tags based off of it. You can like things or share things, and it's an interesting, um, I mean, there's no other content other than posting the link, posting the service that hosts the typeface, and then listing the typefaces itself in a screenshot. But it's it's interesting. Yeah, when, when Typeo came out, I was like totally like, oh, man, of course. Like that's exactly what we're doing with Rock That Font, but like they're doing it on the web. And I, so, I yeah, I love it. It's great. And it's cool how they've um, integrated everything. Um, and, yeah, so I, I love seeing like there's a couple of people I follow on Twitter who are always – um, you know, grabbing different typefaces and using uh, using their social features, so it's definitely cool to have that archived. Particularly mm-hmm. uh, on the web. I mean, one of the interesting things about um, you know rock that font is you really like you can a lot of the records that you know I grew up listening to were in the pre-digital area or pre-digital era. Sorry, and so you know learning a lot about how typography worked back then, um, either before the computer or just when um, you know, desktop publishing was really coming on board and it's, it's, it's interesting to see how the actual 
you know, production processes impacted how the records ended up looking, how that creative process worked. Um, I think like 4AD is a great label to look at, um, whether it's Vaughn Oliver or some of their other artists that really were, you know, using, um, you know, Photoshop and, some, you know, in, in really unique ways at the time, doing a lot of layering and transparency and, and to really, you know, brand 4AD and all the, the artists at the time. Um, and so, yeah, you get to see that like really clearly. It's really cool. But yeah, I, I, again, I think it's like what I love about it too is, and this is something that um, Christopher, you are mentioning earlier, like that I brought up in my Drupal Camp talk was this idea of like, um, you know, knowledge having a shelf life um, and, you know, how it's part of our job to, you know, build these archives um, of things in the digital world. You know, because I think that, you know, and, and because I, I did have some experience in my young life before the internet, you know, recognizing how quickly all the formats change, all the platforms change, all the hardware changes, and, and making sure that you always have access to your information, um, with content that you've produced as well as content just out there. I think that, that you know, idea that we're all librarians and we all have responsibility kind of preserve knowledge um, I think it is and, and maybe it's because I hang out with too many archaeologists but like that's like that's I think something that is important for everybody to think about right I think yeah they, definitely it's important to um, just you know I, I like the idea of having your own brand just so that you uh, you know like you said like you know control your online identity so no one else does but make sure you it's not like in case anyone's interested, you know, it's pretty the best part is like if they come across your website or Twitter, like you, you're you ready to present whether it's like the middle of the night for them and they're just checking something out or or you're talking to a potential client or something like that. So it's always, yeah, it's, it's always you know, great. exactly. I think, you know, along that kind of concept of like we're all librarians and, you know, the keepers of, of knowledge in this world now that, you know, knowledge is accessible. Um, the internet in, in such an amazing way um, but you're right I mean like your personal life your that's your journey um, and I think I think so many people document um, you know their journey whether it's photos of their family or, or just their thoughts about the industry um, you know documenting that online you know not just for others but for yourself I think is, is important to have a kind of appropriate perspective about the industry and and I think, too, it's like it's part of a psychological process, right? Like, you know, reading kind of your own thoughts online kind of helps, you know, you learn about how you, you know, project your voice out into the world and how ridiculous you may sound <laughs> and how, you know, it helps you really better communicate your ideas to others, which is, I think, a big part of it, too. I mean, I certainly, you know, I think I mentioned that talk. I've learned more, um, you know, getting Rock That Font off the ground um, than anything else I've worked on um, and I think it's because of how engaged I was in that project um, that it was something that was driven by passion um, and you know whether that's me becoming a better writer um, or you know me becoming a better coder I mean it's across the board it's it's been a lot of fun yeah I mean that's um, people ask me like um, I used to teach web design development and so one thing I um, one of the things I always do is I ask students to pick their own personal project to build a website around. Um, yeah. 
because other than that, you know, there's an, if I tell them to build a website about XYZ, they're not going to be interested in building it. But if there's a passion they bring to it, like, you know, topography on record albums, they'll, they'll, they know the content, they love the content, they love being around that content, and they'll be, they'll help them get over, over hurdles to, uh, to learn that stuff, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you, when you're engaged, you're passionate about something, you're going to learn it so much better, you're going to learn it faster, it's, it's going to be a joy, and instead of just, you know, a lot of us, you know, you'll be in a job and you're like, oh, okay, we've got to learn this stuff to do this and execute on this. And, and it's just different. It's just yeah. different. Yeah. So I, I do like to probably transition a little bit of gears, but hopefully not to me. But so in the late 90s, um, we were building websites. And then um, how did you get to work at South by Southwest? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I've been at South by Southwest 13 years. Now, almost fourteen. Um, I don't know. I'm losing count. But I, oddly enough, I had, you know, I, I took a long time to go through the University of Texas because I was dropping out to go tour with American Animal and said, uh, and this reminds me of this quote in the movie Better Off Dead. I don't know with John Cusack that I love, but um, the character who um, most people know is, um, I guess Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. Or anyways, he talks to me. He's like. You know, Lane, I've been going to the school for seven and a half years. <laughs> I'm no dummy, you know, whatever. So it's kind of like reminds me of that. That was my college experience at UT. But I ended up, um, I studied uh, a lot of different things, like everything from aerospace engineering to uh, astronomy and physics to ended up finally finding um, where my heart really was in the communication school and the uh, RTF program because they had a program at the time called New Media, um, which is basically the department trying to catch up with what was happening mm-hmm. in the digital world. And so I ended up finally finding what I was passionate about um, and ended up meeting uh, Wei, yeah, who was, was a TA of mine at the time. He's like, hey, you're in all this music stuff. And, uh, you're a geek. You know, why don't, uh, why don't you come volunteer for South by Southwest? And, um, I really wasn't that familiar with what South Coast was. I mean, I knew the music side of it. Um, you know, had vaguely heard of the interactive side of it. Uh, and then, uh, so yeah, I volunteered back in March of 2000. Met Hugh for the first time, and that was really a big part of um, cementing my transition. That was already kind of happening into like the digital world and into the web um, because I, I saw everything around me. And I don't remember oh, who was it. What was her name? That um, she was one of the first people to to do like you know twenty four seven webcam of her life. I don't remember her name in a minute, but you know, being exposed to all these amazing experiments of um, what was happening and in, in, with the digital and, and the physical world. And I, I just I don't know. I was just at that point, uh, you know, really inspired. Um, and then an opening came up uh, for somebody to produced the, at the time, what was called the Web Awards. Uh, and so in November of 2000, I came on board to help uh, produce that. And uh, and so at that point in time, you know, realized that Interactive was, you know, Hugh Forrest, our director, and me, and a salesperson. Yeah. Um, and it was like that for a long time. And now, you know, we have a team, depending on what time of year it is, of 20 to 30 people just for Interactive. Um, and so... 
that first full Sexist event and as a staffer in 2001, um, I think it was like the peak of the Dow Jones, you know, it was like the, the dot-com bubble was, uh, was big. And then the following March, I think it was at the lowest point that uh, at least the NASDAQ had ever been. And, uh, and so it was a really interesting time to kind of come into Southwest and start working with Hugh and start working on the web awards. And as a result, you know, I kind of got to see a lot of amazing work. Um, you know, people would submit uh, their creative projects, you know, from all over the globe. And, um, you know, this was back when you had all these large online design portals like um, Design is Kinky and mm. 10K and, and all these, you know, the importance of like the online portal and these content aggregators. Um, that's what everybody would go check out every day, you know, whether they would go to that website and, you know, kind of look at all the cool work that had been posted. And so, um, but yeah, I guess the rest is kind of history, as they say. Um, we kind of uh, went through a number of years, you know, really just, as I mentioned before, trying to you know, tell the story of why um, South West was a really valuable place to be in March. And uh, I think in, yeah, later on, it, it, things started to kind of grow. And, but yeah, that's, that's I think pretty much how I got involved as a volunteer. And then, uh, yeah. Way used to actually be uh, my shift leader when I was volunteering. Yeah. Yeah, I, I should add that, um, you know, Way had recommended me for the job, and then when he finally finished his PhD after what I would call the, the Better Off Dead uh, program at the university as well, um, we were able to hire him um, a few years ago to come on full-time. Um, so it's kind of this neat full-circle thing that, you know, the man responsible for really getting me involved in the event, you know, now, you know, works on the team with me, and we all, you know, have a great time doing the event every March. And so it's, you know, it's grown from like, I guess you guys are trying to convince people why they should come to South by Southwest in March to, um, I don't know, I don't, do you still do that? I mean, it just seems like, you, is there still a need to do that? Because it's, it's grown so, yeah, so much. Yeah, now we're like, don't, don't come in March. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously, I think, you know, a big uh, tipping point just for lack of a better word, as punny as that may be, it was in 2005, you know, we had Malcolm Gladwell speak at the event mm-hmm. and we saw a lot of growth then and obviously with Twitter hitting its tipping point in 2007 um, and then, you know, interactive, you know, very much being a kind of internet in real life, you know, followed the growth of a lot of these social channels like Twitter and Facebook and um yeah, so we, you know, a big part of my role and responsibilities here is um, in terms of marketing and, and strategy and trying to, you know, basically get the different um, departments, the music, film, and interactive um, to kind of work together and, and present the best uh, Southwest experience we can. Uh, so I head up a lot of our efforts with Convergence um, in that way. And, and, and yeah, so we, you know, I mentioned, I guess when we kicked off the interview, that I just got back from our first event in Vegas, mm-hmm. which was a startup and entrepreneurial-focused event, but across all the creative industries. So we had a couple of nights of music showcases, a special film screening, and um, a kind of, you know, and, and from our perspective, a very kind of unusual diversity of presentations. Um, 
you know, kind of with the really broad definition of what a startup is and, and what an entrepreneur is, and in a certain sense, you know, we, we all are entrepreneurs and, um, in our own ways, you know, whether it's our passion project or um, whether it's somebody playing in a band, which is pretty much almost anybody in Austin or, um, you know, anything else. And, um, you know, so far, you know, we've, we've got a lot of feedback to look through, but um, people were really excited about V2V um, because it was, we kept hearing again, you know, like, oh, this is just like the way Southwest was back in, you know, 2004 and five, six, and, um, you know, a much smaller, more boutique, mm-hmm. different kind of intimacy. I mean, obviously the signal noise ratio at the March event is very different. Um, you know, it, it takes much more energy to kind of find your friends and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but, it, but it's interesting, you know, I, um, you know, to that issue of growth, I mean, Having been at South West so long, you know, we, we hear a lot of people that, you know, just like to complain, kind of this myth of the golden past, you know, like, oh, South West sucks now. It used to be so much better. And, and you know, and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I was there and, you know, there, there's more cool shit at South West now than there ever was before. Granted, the challenge is finding it, you know, that it's these, um, the right, having the right filters and tools on being able to navigate the event now, you know, we understand is, is a very challenging thing and, and you know, we're always working to um, to make that a better experience and kind of create these you know, different micro events, um, you know, within South by Southwest and around these you know particular topics and subjects, right. uh, so that you can find like-minded creatives. And I think you know what people loved about V to V is that you know again it was just it took any of the navigational challenges out of it. You know, we were at the Cosmopolitan um, in Las Vegas, which is a great venue. Um, and so, you know, you'd walk out of a, a room and, and run into the same people that you did before and be able to kind of pick up the conversation. And so there's real value in that. And I think really that's what we're trying to do with V2V is just create kind of another option uh, that delivers, you know, a, a different value um, to the end user and to, to folks that are participating in that community. Um, and, and that's really the way we look at it is like, here's another platform, uh, you know, for folks that, you know, have been coming to the March event for a long time or perhaps um, somebody that just wants to experience Southwest in a different way. So why why not cap South by Southwest Austin instead of reaching out? Sure. I mean, it's a good question. And, you know, that was something that um, I fought for pretty hard back in the day as well as a few others here. Um, you know, and... and you know, I lost that battle. And in many ways, it was a good thing that I did. Um, and here's why. We always wanted South by Southwest to be open and available to the independent developer. Um, as we knew that if we capped the event at a lower number, um, like a lot of events do, that the nature of the community would change um, in terms of, you know, prices would, you know, skyrocket certain ways and just, you know, whatever laws of supply and demand would happen, but mm-hmm. it would, it would just no longer be accessible for those who we feel were really doing amazing things. And so, um, that was something that, you know, we were conscious of. Um, and that's why we always do different kinds of programs, um, you know, different kinds of ways to participate in the event that, that lets, um, people that, you know, are doing innovative work, um, you know, who, you know, may not always have, you know, big budgets to come to the event to at least participate in some way right. and come to Southwest. So that, that was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, what we, the funny thing, like back when 
these discussions were going on um, back in, oh, I don't know, 2009, 10, 11, whatever, we, we weren't too worried about it because we we're like, well, there's only a certain number of hotels and there's only a certain number of flights in the city, so there'll be like right. a natural cap on the event. And what we didn't, you know, really calculate for is the whole um, home away and Airbnb mm. phenomenon and, and just the true, uh, uh, you know, drive and um, <laughs> determination that so many in the community had to get to the event. And so it definitely um, has, has grown a lot. But uh, and, and, you know, yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, Hugh and I and the rest of the company and, and team, you know, really struggle with what's the right balance on this, um, what's working and what isn't working. And um, the nice thing about South Southwest is that, you know, every year is different. Um, we rebuild so much of the event from the ground up every year based on community feedback that um, it, it, yeah, it's a different experience every time. And so things that were problematic the year before likely won't be the next year. And so it, it's kind of cool in that way. I was meeting with, a group of MBA students um, from the McCombs Business School here in Austin. And we've done some various kind of programs with them where they kind of help us solve problems. And in this recent meeting, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were talking all about, you know, sharing with me kind of knowledge about like, you know, business plan. And this is in reference to V2V mm-hmm. in Vegas. And they're like, oh, you've got to do this. You've got to really nail it in year one because that's going to, you know, have you know, this big impact on year two and three and whatever. And I was like, hold on guys, you know, like you're, you know, but it's a very valid point um, in traditional business. And then you know, whether you're talking um, brick and mortar or anything else, but with the nice thing about, you know, the events business, the industry is um, every year, you know, it's going to be different. It should be different. It has to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that I think Hugh has been great about, you know, when I'm always kicking and screaming about, can't we do what we do just better in terms of the user experience? You know, Hugh's always good about pushing, like, well, what are we doing that's new and fresh and, you know, right. that we can offer people? And so I think that balance between, um, you know, Hugh pushing the new and fresh and me pushing the better user experience and kind of the discussions and, and arguments that we have about what to do along with, you know, feedback from the rest of the team. Uh, and obviously, you know, our uh, Christine Otten, who... Uh, I share an office with, you know, heads up our efforts with V2V, you know, like we all um, kind of aware of a lot of the challenges that our community and audience is having at South West. And, and it's awesome to have uh, each year kind of take a new crack at these things. And I'm kind of excited about some of the things that we're cooking up for March, 2014. So Yeah. Well, I will say like it's been very responsive. I mean, uh, one year the Wi-Fi was just so terrible. I think it was probably the first Probably 2005 to 2007, not sure which year it was, but it was, Wi-Fi was just terrible. Then it was awful. I think, and then uh, the next year, I think you know, there's AT&T rolled out like so many mobile trucks or something like that, and for Wi-Fi. Yeah. And ever since then, I've you know, there hasn't been a really as bad issue with with the internet access to. So like, you definitely see that you guys are responsive. Uh, sure. From one year to the next. So. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting. You know, I think that. You know, I definitely think that what's interesting now is like, you know, I was talking about this kind of concept of micro events, right? And um, it kind of, we essentially have 15 different events in one now for Southwest Interactive. So if you're a web developer, you can go hang out at this part of the convention center and 
if you think of yourself as more of a startup guy, you can go over to this part of you know the Hilton. And it really goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the filter bubble. And you know how you really have to be conscious about what um, your process is in terms of how you expose yourself to new ideas. So in this South East West of the Golden Pass that everybody loves, you know, we didn't structure the event that way. So we didn't have to because you'd pop out of one panel room and you would run into a bunch of business guys that knew a lot about you know, stuff that you didn't know about or, right. or vice versa. Or, you know, and um, that hallway magic that happened back at a smaller scale um, is something that really resonated with everybody. Well, a lot of that hallway magic is still there, but now you know you have to put it on your on yourself. Like, all right, I'm a web developer. Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't go to the design and development um, part of the event. Maybe I should go over to this DIY maker and hacker part right. of the event, you know, and, and expose myself to a lot of new ideas that are happening there. And I think that that's really um, kind of one of the big trade-offs that we've had to make as event organizers um, to really. You know, create those serendipitous interactions now. Just It does require people um, thinking outside of the box a little bit. And, and so we always do different programs to encourage um, people to kind of go to uh, sessions that they may have never imagined themselves going to before. And I think that that's an important step in how we learn new things. And, um, you know, events that I go to, I, I certainly um, get a lot of value out of that. And so... But yeah, I think you know, for us, it's it really is the challenge now with the March event is like to build the best tools that we can mm-hmm. uh, for people to to be able to to discover uh, the new ideas to them um, and, and better navigate the events and um, we deal with some of the capacity issues that we're dealing with, and so that's really kind of the next uh, big challenge for us as far as the March event goes. And, and, and you know, V to V doing this in Vegas. Um, was definitely a part of that equation of like, okay, well, what happens when we take the fastest growing sector of South Southwest in March mm-hmm. and build this optional platform in Vegas? And right. uh, because we in Austin, we no longer have the infrastructure to really support that growth of that particular mm-hmm. uh, micro event, if you will. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm speaking from Capital Factory right now, and Capital Factory has a, a startup. Uh, event and it was just slammed <laughs> uh, up here with people before the event. So, um, but uh, so that just that brings me another point is like you know you you have growth you that hallway magic that you have with Sapai in the beginning and then there's so much growth and but yet you still want to and you try to address that with um, I guess different events in one event and and you kind of mentioned that with like we just said like. What were the changes uh, in the growth in the industry? Have you seen over the, over the last few years? I mean, um, so is I guess the startup culture the fastest growing one, or and, and and how is it different than it was when you know like ten years ago or seven years ago? Or something like that. So. I think in, in general, I mean, obviously the startup culture um, that can kind of mean anything in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, so, so many people are, are startups and don't necessarily frame themselves in that way or as an entrepreneur, but and they may be. But I think in general, you know, when I look at kind of, you know, the 10-year span, you know, obviously, um, I guess the, the kind of advertising agencies and digital marketers have showed up to the party. Mm-hmm. A good way of saying it. Um, you know, obviously, 
10 years ago, um, you know, the web was very important, but, you know, it's still such a, a, a new uh, industry, you know, this crazy intersection of a lot of different things. And, you know, now I think that's, you know, really how the community has kind of evolved, you know, is, is, is it's a diverse community. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, agencies involved now. We've got, you know, people that are just writing code because they love it. We've got, you know, just a, a diverse group of people um, to, to service and, and provide value for. And, um, and that's, that's really challenging, you know, and I think that, but, but yeah, like, per your question, I think that's really like the people that, um, you know, deal with the monetization, um, for lack of a better word, have showed up to the party. And, um, you know, a big part of my job is to basically um, help keep the focus on the stories of Southwest that are happening about people that are just doing amazing things with technology. And because that's really what um, we want to showcase. And, and that's, you know, really the, the magic of what is happening at, at South by Southwest. So. So, yeah, so I know South by Interactive is a, you know, digital, uh, you know, conference or fest- festival. Um, so would you just say that the web is a platform and it's one? And now that it, we've just, you know, it's solid and we're actually just moving on and seeing which industries on top of web are, are expanding and, that just happens to be entrepreneurs and startups and something like that. And then it, it could be something else different down the way or? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I feel is a, a core value of the web is, you know, easy access to not only information, but the tools to create amazing things. And I think that, you know, I hope that that continues to be the case and that, you know, I want those tools, you know, and this kind of connects back to what we talked about before with it, you know, with playing in bands in the late nineties. Um, yeah, I, I want to continue to kind of foster that so that everybody has the tools to learn, um, whether it's web design or, um, you know, any other coding technology or just, just how to share their story online, um, and do amazing creative things, um, in the online world as well as the offline world now, you know, and I think that, um, you know, kind of asking about trends, you know, I mean, I think those of us who have been working um, on the web for a long time, um, you know, we build these amazing digital experiences and they have a shelf life of two to three years and you have to launch, rock that font version, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, and, and I love doing that and it's an amazing, mysterious kind of evolving um, community and, and platform. And, and I think what's fascinating to me or what I've been turning a lot more of my personal attention towards is, is this maker space, um, obviously with 3d printing. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, I think it's one of these things that we look at and we're like, Oh, I get it. I get it. But I don't think we really fully understand the impact that's going to have that. Like I can take any idea and not just, you know, bring it to life in the digital world, but have it come back into the physical world mm-hmm. Essentially, you're basically, you know, through a very short path, being able to manifest ideas and, and to reality. I mean, it's um, it's pretty fascinating on, on so many different levels, and so I'm really excited about what's happening in that space. And I, I think, you know, what we're going to see with you know um, intellectual property law um, here in the next five to ten years is going to make what happened to the music industry look like a Sunday picnic or something. It's <laughs> Um, well, can you expand, expand on that? Like, what do you mean by that? Well, if I can take any object mm. in my environment and digitally scan it, you know, we have 
Dave Pettis of MakerBot debut his digitizer um, during his opening keynote this past March. So I, I can, if I take that, and there's other technologies out there, there's a, a wand that you can scan objects, and then print it in a 3D printer, um, you know, without, you know, with with very, you know, act with very cheap tools. You know, 3D printers now are, are becoming very inexpensive, and, and the material science is about to um, take some leaps and bounds. I mean, I mean, we read stories online about printed organs and printed meat and all kinds of other things, but um, particularly for the layperson, um, it's about to get really interesting. So, for example, if I decide, um, yeah, that particular um, widget that you have is super cool, hold on one second, and then I scan it and I just print one for myself. I mean, mm -hmm. there's an analogy there to like, oh, that song from that band's pretty awesome. Let me grab that file from you. So I think we're going to again see the challenge of, um, you know, what, you know, information, um, who owns information and, and what it is and where the, their rights begin and end right. uh, in the world. And, and I think there's a lot, obviously a lot of solutions, um, whether it's Creative Commons or anything else. But um, I think that, you know, again, this 3D printing and maker movement, yeah. um, it goes well beyond just like us, um, you know, becoming like this, you know, new manufacturing uh, I think again. I think it, it runs much deeper, and I'm so excited about um, the, the crazy possibilities there. And I think that that space, just again, bringing what we're developing in the digital world back into the, the away from keyboard world, for right. example, is just so cool. I mean, it connects to like you know the quantified self movement, and you know I'm kind of becoming more and more of a data geek all the time. Like um, I started finally getting around to just, for example, using Strava all the time and kind of a, a big cycling dork. And yeah. so, you know, now I'm like looking at all this data and, and geeking out with that. And I mean, obviously a lot of people with, you know, whether it's Fitbit or anything else, um, right. you yeah. know, again, it's that, that digital becoming more pervasive in our lives. And of course the internet of things and. Right. Well, yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I can definitely see where like someone could come up and say like, Hey, like a, like a kid says, like, hey, I have a Hot Wheel racer car. Like, you want a copy of it and just put it into the 3D printer and, and it has a copy of it. And then all they paid for was the uh, the parts for it, you know, the, the, for the uh, material. Right? Yeah. Right. And so I think it's, I mean, I think iTunes has solved this. They'll just, you know, you know, is this person authorized to have this Hot Wheel car? Yes or no? Like, sorry. And so. Sure. <laughs> so sure. Yeah, I mean, I, but I, I do think, though, that, you know, it, I certainly hope that uh, you know it's yeah it's it's going to be challenging on a lot of levels because I think you know the a three D printer and, and scanner and and you know the way the software you know once that gets a little more friendly in terms of CAD stuff I mean like there's you're, you it's so easy to have an independent setup like you don't have to you don't have to talk to anybody else you don't have to have mm -hmm. um, and and that's I think it's great you know I think it's you know the kind of technologies that right. you, know, you can put in developing environments and um, you know it's going to take you know the whole shipping uh, of products around the world or trying to get things into difficult regions hmm. uh, you know I, I think that that's where uh, you know, we're going to see a lot of amazing changes too down the line to shipping and distribution like the idea that alright I'm going to put this little 3D printing lab in the, the middle of Africa and it's going to be able to pump out parts to help you know, machinery or 
farm equipment or you know whatever it is like we're going to start to see some crazy impact in those environments and um, but yeah the, you're right the kids in the hot wheels they're the ones that are going to be um you know <laughs> yeah well, I, I just hate it when I, I have a new mac and i'm like hey i want to play this song that i know i own and they're like oh you're not authorized to have this and i'm like oh, i totally am and i have to like deauthorize every computer and then i have to like i'll start Sorry, authorizing everything. So, so basically, I just see a kid just like, hey, I want a copy of that. It's like, oh, sorry. You, you Johnny, are not authorized to have a, this uh, this car. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, that's the, that's the thing. It all depends on kind of what happens with these, um, essentially, the kind of CAD software and, and, you know, how that gets put into the cloud or not, you know. Um, yeah, you're right. It, it's There'll be some... There's some solutions that are there, but yeah, yeah I think it's always open for uh, folks as it, as it is now to you know go through the trouble to do whatever they need to do to make their own. Johnny's going to make his own car. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, totally going to make make my own car. It's going to be better and better than the other one. But um, well, one thing I want to talk about is is the pound picker for South by and how that could come about and and um, and I guess uh, how it's I guess it's relied on the other festivals too, right? Was that right? Yeah, like we we use the panel picker now, not just for interactive, but for music and film, which we've been doing for um, two or three years now at least. Um, yeah, the, the panel picker uh, came about in two thousand six or so. Um, we were might have even been late two thousand five. We were looking at a lot of the uh, youngsters around the office that were, you know, buying all these shirts for like 10 bucks and with really strong designs. And it was from a company called Threadless. And, you know, we were fascinated by how Threadless operated. You know, we thought it was like this brilliant, you know, model of, um, you know, having the community not only design the product, but mm-hmm. determine the demand for the product. And, um, you know, just this amazing community and doing a lot of fun stuff. And, you know, sitting there and Hugh's like, well, why don't we do this for the conference? Because we need a way to kind of, um, you know, formalize all these calls for proposals. You know, at the time, you know, people would just email us with like, hey, I've got a great idea for a panel. Right. It's getting to the point where we couldn't manage that anymore. We thought that a system like this would kind of really help us determine um, what ideas would be more popular that we could put in big rooms and stuff like that. So we worked with a developer who at the time was the webmaster of the Austin Chronicle, which was right across the volleyball from the Southwest office, um, who, oddly enough, you know, when I was talking about the Apple II that I owned uh, with my family as a child, um, this was a buddy of mine that would come over and we would geek out and kind of write code together and um, dork around with this, um, you know, 1200 baud modem or whatever the heck it was um and his name's Lindsay simon and so Lindsay and hugh and myself just kind of you know co-developed this panel picker application uh, that we put together in in fall of 2006 um and crowdsourced the conference for the first time and you know, I think what we didn't realize at the time was how the panel picker was much more than just a, a formal way to collect call for proposals. Um, you know, again, the kind of one of the things I talk 
then my Drupal camp talk was, you know, embracing accidents. And um, two things kind of emerged out of that that were accidental, that were really positive. One, the kind of, you know, marketing engine of it. If somebody submits an idea and it's online and people can vote for it, they would turn around and really rally their audiences and their community uh, to have them involved in South West. And so people doing this through social channels, you know, really helped spread awareness of the interactive event and what we were doing in Austin. Um, and to these days, it's, it's to kind of an irritating degree, I think. But, um, you know, I think the other thing that was, I think, much more intriguing was the idea that, you know, now that it's kind of reached a certain scale, um, you know, we'll get, you know, over 3,000 different ideas um, that people you know, want to see happen in Austin. We have a really interesting data set of what people want to talk about. Uh, and so when you compare this data over time, you start to see trends uh, emerge and um, start to see the seeds of, of the future. And, um, you know, because you do have this really unique community um, you know, that are early adopters that are out there, you know, building cool new stuff all the time. And so that's something that I try to do more and more of is basically look at that data um, and try to kind of, you know, help us build tools to look at that, um, you know, which, which a lot of, I think, big, you know, advertising companies and stuff, you know, they, agencies, they sell a lot of tools for folks to look at Twitter and Facebook and look at all that data and mm-hmm. to see what's, what's coming down the line. Um, for a particular brand or, or you know, whatever. But, um, you know, I, I find that uh, the panel picker and, and what we've seen kind of emerge and, and, and disappear. I think, you know, the example that I first started using when I, we started talking about this publicly was, you know, we could tell um, that the kind of quote-unquote web was going away, meaning that when you even did a simple, like, Wordle kind of analysis, um, mm-hmm. the language of... Um, the web was changing because uh, as digital kind of started pervading every aspect of our lives, there was no longer this distinction between the web and, you know, the quote unquote real world or meat space. And, um, you know, that wired, I think was able to kind of jump on this. And I think it was a Chris Anderson article where he said, you know, the web is dead, you know, and, and like just why, and kind of talked about that aspect of the, um, ubiquity and the internet of things. And, um, all of that. So we were able to see a lot of that as well as the emergence of social, um, you know, and, and a lot of the social stuff that came out of the event, um, as well as, you know, just, again, just just the word analysis, we could even see kind of how people talked about social technologies changed as we come that, you know, that became more of just something that was part of all of our experiences online and the digital space. So, um, but yeah, there's been a lot of cool things like that. And, and, you know, I think now we um, you know, we just wrapped up our um, submission phase where people had shared a lot of ideas that, that they wanted to see happen in March. And here on uh, Monday, um, voting is going to begin. Um, see, so yeah, I get ready for your social streams to <laughs> blow up, to light up with people wanting you to vote for their panel paper submission. Right. Um, thanks, thanks for the heads up. I appreciate it. Yeah, and, and you know, and it's important too. I mean, with that, so the first year we did the panel picker, mm-hmm. um, it was what you would call kind of a pure, um, like Hugh and I looked at the the voting data and really let that shape um, the event in 2007. And we we got a lot of feedback that year that like, oh, you know, the panel sessions just you know didn't have the same quality and 
you know, is it a very unusual mix of people? And, um, and we always like to keep a lot of, of what we call fresh blood of like speakers that have never um, spoken publicly before. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also know that a lot of people who are, um, are geeks or nerds, like, like not everybody's like you, Chris, where, you know, they're nerds and they can also do a great talk, you know, like, um, in some ways these are very different talents for a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the most brilliant minds, you know, the interview format is a little bit better for them. Um, just depending. But anyways, what my point is, is that the panel picker uh, voting only accounts for about 30% of the process. Um, so yes, it'll make a difference, but you know, our advisory board, um, as you know, um, accounts for about 40% of the process and then staff uh, feedback is another 30%. Um, and so we do, you know, over time we have curated a lot more mm-hmm. uh, event and kind of brought in, um, you know, some top tier folks and featured speakers mm-hmm. um, you know, that we generally will curate a lot of that. But we still, you know, the bulk of the ideas um, you know, do come from the panel picker and what the community is bringing to South Pacific West. And um, it's something that, uh, you know, yeah, we're definitely proud of that we've got, we still have this platform where anybody in the online world can say, hey, this is what I think we should talk about South West and here's how I'd like to do it. And, and we give them the green light to do that. So, so and, and that's one of the things I, I love about, I love and to love about Southwest is like, if, if you've never spoken at an event, uh, it might be a little harder now, but like it was, um, it was always like a way to, to break into speaking uh, as a way to do that. And so I think it's a little bit harder now with, you know, probably have to have a really good idea and concept and, and everything like that. But, um, um, I do want to talk about um, the the internal picking, like like what type of, if you don't mind, like I guess you know, picking back a little bit of behind the curtain is like what was the process of sure of, of the internal stuff that Top Line does for, for picking. Yeah. Things have evolved in a lot of ways over the years and not changed in others. Um, the panel picker has gone through a couple different evolutions. Um, I think it was just ahead of, of last year's panel picker. So what is that? like? Yeah, summer before last, we had launched a kind of new version of the panel picker that had been written for the ground up. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, it, it's for film, music, interactive, our eco event, and our EDU event. And next year will be for our V2V event as well, um, this platform. So, you know, we do the panel picker voting phase, and then... Um, we use a couple different things. So we have a, a custom um, web judging app, essentially, that's an interface that we use um, also for our web awards and use for um, in other ways to, to look at ideas. But as far as um, internally, you know, South West was unusual in that um, we've had Macs and been a Mac company um, since the beginning. And, um, so we use FileMaker um, for our end users. Um, which a lot of people are surprised by that. Um, but for us, um, because we have so many different things going on, um, it makes a lot of sense you know, to basically educate the staff to be able to produce their own layouts and do some different things with the data that they need to do. Um, and so, we, yeah, we have a FileMaker um, backend or you know, server for the end users and then, you know, various platforms online for everything. Um, and, and we've been doing more and more um, 
kind of custom applications. Um, and I think actually, you know, that's an interesting kind of thing, you know, what sets South by Southwest apart in terms of the tech and, and geek end of things is we've always um, preferred to build our own tools instead of use somebody else's. And I think, I think even, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, and the reason why we did this is we always, you know, wanted to maintain control over, uh, you know, what we could do with the data and, um, and what we needed to do with the data. And I, I think in the end, you know, that was, um, it's been much more cost effective for us to do, uh, to get what we want and be nimble enough and make changes and kind of, um, you know, have a lot of these custom applications. Um, and yeah, and as a result, I mean, we went, definitely went through a really tough time where, you know, getting data in and out of FileMaker um, into various online platforms was really challenging. Mm-hmm. But once Rails came along, um, you know, we could do a lot with like PHP movers and um, we're able to move data around much more easily. Um, and so, so yeah, it's a mix of a lot of different things. But we'll pull after the voting phase, um, you know, once that, once that ends, actually we start a lot of this analysis um, even before the voting uh, period of the panel picker ends. But, you know, we're looking at ideas. We're uh, assessing what's um, really creative and valuable about them. Um, and we're doing a lot of that in, in FileMaker. So. Okay. Well, um, what type of, like, you know, you notice how we've, we've grown from the web to, to a different type of talks that are get entered into. It's like as you, as you have panel picker decide 30% and the advisory board does 40%, you know, what type of talk would you like to see? Or do you like to see, like when you're making that cut, like that, you know, it's on the edge or not. Like, what what would give a, a talk a nod more than more than another nod, a talk? Sure. Proposal? And we we're pretty transparent. I mean, you know, we do have a bunch of blog posts about you know what makes a good panel picker um, proposal from our perspective. But I think the first and most important thing is really the the scope of what you're going to talk about. Um, I think. So many people come in and they want to talk about something that's happening in the industry, um, and it's just too much to cover in a 60-minute uh, presentation um, or panel. Um, that, I think, is the number one thing that people do wrong. They want to cover too much um, with, for the time. And that, that you know, they may have a great idea. They may have incredible speakers lined up, but it just comes down to, like, trying to do too much um, for the time. And, you know, because I think... So clarity of what you're trying to communicate to an audience is like really important. Realizing what those takeaways are going to be. Um, so having very clear takeaways uh, is another thing. And you know, I mean, we've made um, it no secret that you know in recent years we've really liked solo and dual presentations. Mm-hmm. We we tend to agree with a lot of people that you know the panel format in many ways is is dated and. Um, it definitely has its place and its strengths at South by Southwest, but, um, you know, it's not for every topic. Right. Um, and so we really do place a priority on the kind of solo and dual and, and these other formats, um, like our core conversations, which are, are more of an informal uh, panel, if you will, or birds of a feather, uh, kind of a strange mix of that. And then we have our future 15 mm-hmm. short form presentation. So, We've been playing around with the different formats for a while to to basically help speakers 
convey the, the maximum amount of value within a certain set um, time. And um, so that's important to us. But I think, you know, also something that's part of the handle-picker process is, you know, this aspect of diversity, whether it be uh, gender diversity or, um, you know, anything else. Like, you know, nobody wants to hear from, like, you know, somebody and their friends about, you know, any topic. And so, you know, having the diversity of opinion on a panel, you know, having, you know, putting panels that somebody proposes and they've got their competitors on the panel with them, it's always, you know, a good sign um, because, you know, that means they're open to um, those kind of discussions happening at South Pacific West. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different things we look at, but those are a couple of uh, things that come to mind. And, uh, another thing I, I just realized just, just talking to you is like um, the whole the start of the pro- panel process and the actual delivering of some of a speaker actually delivering it uh, encompasses and actually overlaps entirely the U- U.S. Uh, football season. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so you already asked for submissions, you already you got them going, and then by the time it comes to deliver, I mean we've already had the Super Bowl, right? So. Yeah. I mean, and so the the panels that get that get picked or submitted now or like recently, you know, and technology changes so much, um, you know, yeah, like what? You know, yeah, we we definitely kind of, have addressed that in a couple of different ways. A number of years ago, based on a lot of feedback, um, you know, we started doing like what we call late break programming. We you know we've gotten this feedback. I guess a number of years ago, we you know were addressing this issue, and, and we developed what we call like late break programming. So we have entire tracks of programming um, within the event that we don't program until very late in the game um, to address this and to address that issue. And then um, you know we do leave a lot of slots open, a lot of the kind of curated um, components of it by staff mm-hmm. until kind of the last minute. So. Um, yeah, there are a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of the panels that come together um, nine months ahead of the event in terms of their idea, general concept, um, you know, and, and we see an evolution of that at times. I mean, sometimes we'll see some, you know, particular panel, um, they'll make some changes at the last minute to accommodate new stuff uh, that's come into the event. So we, we do leave a lot of that up to organizers of sessions. Um, but at the same time, we have um, the late break tracks, um, as well as a lot of other curated um, sessions at the event that um, come in at the last minute and deal with that that same issue. And I think, um, you know, we many years ago we kind of learned about that. You know, in a lot of the feature programming tracks we put together. I remember, I remember it was probably two or three years ago now. But you know, we had um, we're always approached, I guess, in February by like really interesting people that want to be part of the event. And mm-hmm. in some cases, you know, we wouldn't have the room um, and. You know, so we always, you know, we always have a few people have to drop out at the last minute, right? Um, as well as, um, you know, leaving a couple slots open for a lot of this stuff that's coming in uh, late is is part of the whole design of the event. So. Cool. I guess guess you keep center toes then, whole thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and um, you know, that's a big part of, um, I guess the, the real challenge of working on the event too. Once it gets to a certain scale is that is that balance of making sure that we have the latest industry issues, um, the latest relevant folks involved, um, and at the same time, you know, do get it done ahead of, you know, a lot of our deadlines for putting together, whether it's print materials or 
getting all the information online and the schedule as quickly as possible. So like we'll do our first big uh, programming announcement in October this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that'll, that'll have, um, you know, at least half of the event, um, as far as the different ideas that were accepted from the panel picker. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we want people to, um, to know what they're getting into, you know, when buy a badge and, and to kind of know what they're going to get out of it. And, um, so that's a, a big reason why we make that first announcement in October. And and so as we record this, then next week is going to be the big onslaught of, of tweets for people to vote on uh, on 2014's uh, sessions. So I guess we're going to be prepared for that. Uh, but uh, yeah, cool. I, and I think it's, you know, I love going to it. I live in Austin, so it's, I don't have the Airbnb that one. But, um, but yeah, I, I hope it for everyone else can come out to it because it's, it's just really great to have, have a big party in, uh, in the backyard and, yeah. I, and, and please kudos to, you know, the whole team over there too. Cause, um, I, I organize conferences. I'd never, I never ever want to be on the scale that you guys do. Uh, but, uh, but you guys, I, I, I can't, I know it's just, it's not you guys just alone. It's the old volunteer team and everything. It's just, I, it blows my mind how much, how many cogs uh, need to be working at the same time for everything to work together. So, yeah, it's amazing, and it, it's you know it certainly is a community event. Every aspect, from people submitting ideas to the panel picker, from our, our volunteer army, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to all the different um, staffers here and, and departments, it, it is um, pretty amazing that it, it continues to happen every year. We we don't take that for granted. You know, we really um, are honored that everybody uh, continues to come to the event in March and, and make it really special. You know, because we. I'm telling staffers all the time, you know, our responsibility is to build the best playground we can and really, you know, have the nuts and bolts there for folks to plug into and show off what they're doing and their creativity um, and their creations and, and emerging technology. So, but yeah, thanks so much for having me today. And uh, thanks for Sam for being co-host today. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. And uh, how can people find you on online on this I guess, especially on social media, except for Facebook, how can people? Yeah. Find me? <laughs> they can't find me on Facebook anymore, but there are other Sean O'Keefe's. You're more than welcome to talk. <laughs> um, I've got, yeah, at Sean O'Keefe on Twitter, just S H A W N O K E E F E, Sean O'Keefe.com. Um, it's got you know my email address and various ways to contact me there. Or if it's South West related, just Sean at SXSW.com. So it's, um, Pretty easy to find. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again, and uh, talk to you soon, man. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah.